and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. He is risen. A little louder, He is risen. Well, praise God that although our Savior was crucified, died on a Roman cross, was laid in a tomb, dead, cold, on the morning of the third day, He was raised to life by God the Father, proving that He was Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God. Because only God has the power to bring life from death. Amen? The resurrection is God the Father's seal of approval on everything that Jesus had done. God the Father raised Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, proving that He, the Father God, was satisfied with the Son. Welcome to Easter Sunday morning, the Resurrection Day at Bentry Church. If you're new here, my name is Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor here at Bentry. And let me just say, for those uh, that are here, I'm just glad to see you. I'm talking to visitors, yes, but I'm talking to my Bentry family too. Uh, you guys are a sight for sore eyes. Don't, I don't take it for granted that you're here. Bebe and I are just blessed to have you as a church family to, to call this group of people our church, our home. And yes, it's Jesus and His resurrection that makes this Sunday so special, but it's getting to be here together, worshiping with you, the people that we love, that deepens that joy even more. There's not another place on earth I would rather be this morning. There's not another group of people I would rather be with. And sorry I'm feeling sappy this morning. I'm kind of a sappy guy. I just love you. I love you. I love Jesus. And I love that you love Jesus. Uh, And with that said, because I love you, I always want to give you the very best that I can give you to grow your relationship with God. And the very thing that I think that you can have, the very best thing is this, this morning. To preach the scripture, something that will count forever, something that will give you life, that will nourish you. Because it's the word of God that has the power to give life, Uh, to call you from the grave to grow you up to, to all that God wants you to be. Well, let's get our Bibles out and we'll take a break from where we've been at in our series. And so that you may believe that's our series as we've worked verse by verse through the chapter uh, chapters of John chapter 5. We'll get back to that when we're together again back in chapter John. But today we're going to jump ahead <clears throat> like four years ahead. Uh, but... Before we go any further, let's pray. Let's ask God for his blessing on our time. Would you just bow your head? Let's, let's go to God in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, all-powerful God, all-knowing God, make your truth known to us. The gravity of these words is just almost more than we can bear. So we, we pray that you take the words written in Scripture, you drive them deep into our hearts, deep into our psyche. God, help us to know the power of your Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that lives in your Word. Help it to live in us. We believe that the power of your Spirit is working in us, continuing to bring life to us as well. We pray that we live in that power today as we study your words of truth in the Bible. 
is in the name of our risen Savior and Lord. We've all prayed and said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you miss Friday night's service here at Bentry, make plans to attend next year. I know that's a full year away, but it's that service that we remember Jesus' suffering on the cross, His death on the cross. And like, what does the death of Jesus mean? That's what we talked about. What was its purpose as we celebrated communion? Two reasons I want us to remember before we get into the story of the resurrection is this. If you're taking notes, and I encourage you to, write this down. Number one, Jesus died to bring us near to God. Jesus died to bring us near to God. That's because we were far from God. We're talking about relationship, not a physical distance. Our relationship with God was one of being his enemy. We were God's enemy. You could even say that we were infinitely far off in that respect, lost in our sin, unable to connect with him, literally dead in our trespasses, no way to see what we need to see because we were blind. No way to get to God. Cut off. The Apostle Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Before Jesus died, we were guilty of our sins, awaiting our final judgment of spiritual death and suffering. We stood guilty, or as Peter calls it, unrighteous. But Jesus, who had come to earth truly God, yet truly man, had lived this perfect, sinless life, never breaking one of God's laws. Therefore, he was righteous. Even though he had been tempted in every single way that we have been tempted And yet he was sinless. He was righteous. What the Apostle Peter is saying here is that Jesus' death was a sacrificial death. The death of the righteous Jesus paying for the debt of the unrighteous. You, me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Paul says, he, meaning God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, meaning Jesus, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death brings us us near to God in relationship. Our sin debt is paid. We are made righteousness, righteous in Jesus. Now the second big thing that the death of Jesus did is this. Jesus died to reveal God's character. Jesus died to reveal God's character. So that we can better know who this all-powerful God is. Think of it this way. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that we can see that there is a God through creation. We just know that there is a God. Before Jesus' death, we could know there was a God in the Hebrew Scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. But it is in the giving of his only son that we see the character character of God's love revealed in the depth of his love for us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at that word proves. Another translation says 
demonstrates. I like that one too, don't you? Or we could say His love is revealed to us, made known to us, unveiled to us. But look, when was God's love revealed to us? While we were still sinners. Before we loved Him, He loved us. Literally, before we knew Him, He knew us and called us to life in Him. Now, we could go on and on about Jesus' death and God's love for us, praise God, and we will never stop talking about that. Because it's Easter, though, I want us to back up a bit and read John 19 just for a moment. As Jesus' motionless dead body hung on the cross that Friday morning, the Friday afternoon. But I want us to understand, first, how we know Jesus was dead. The Roman soldiers who were tasked with the execution of any of the criminals that were given to them, they were very good at their job. Their job was to administer the justice of Rome in this foreign country of Israel where they were posted. They didn't care what the crime was. They were not there to judge. Pontius Pilate was there to judge. If he said kill them, they killed them. But this team of Roman soldiers, the execution squad's job was not just to kill. It was also to make a statement to everyone around. The Romans were making that statement that The death of the prisoner is more than just a death sentence. It carried out. uh, It it was a spectacle of suffering for everyone to see. They wanted to make sure that everyone knew that to break Roman law meant that you had to pay the death, and that was the easiest part, that you would be begging for the gift of death by the end of the suffering. The show of brutality was carefully designed to cause as much pain as possible so that a message would be sent out to the Jews, keep in line. But for the Roman soldiers crucifying Jesus and these thieves on either side of him, they had special orders that day to hurry it up. Pontius Pilate wanted to maintain order, not upset the Jewish Sanhedrin, the the ruling council. These rulers had asked Pilate to have these crucified on Friday morning to have the legs broken to hurry up their death. They wanted them, their bodies, to be taken off the crosses on before the Sabbath on this preparation day for the Sabbath. And not just any Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath. This was the preparation day for the Sabbath, and not just any Sabbath, remember, the highest one of the year. So the order had come down to these executioners, go ahead, break the legs of all these guys on the cross. That would prevent them from pushing up from the nail in the bottom in their feet, and they couldn't get a breath because they couldn't push up on their broken legs. Because a man could live two, three, four. There's some cases he could live a a whole week on the cross. But they came to Jesus and he was already dead. So I want us to pick it up in verse 34. Look at your chapter there in your Bible, verse chapter 19. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. The soldier had possibly pierced the fibrous sack called the pericardium that surrounds the heart. Blood and water 
separately flowed out of the hole in the side the spear thrust had made, meaning that he had been dead for at least a time. Two men had been secret disciples, secret followers of Christ, who were on that ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, and the chief teacher, Nicodemus, that we just recently studied. They come to to pry Jesus' hands and feet off the cross. The act of love on their part was a grisly one. It was a grisly business because Jesus' body was very bloody, very dirty. Much of the skin had been peeled away on his back. He was very bloody from all the scourging that he had uh, had done to him that morning. For these two men taking Jesus' body off the cross, it would have cost them greatly. For one, it would mean they were disqualified for participating in any of the Passover feast celebrations on that Sabbath. They couldn't have even gone into the temple area because they were ceremonially unclean for touching a corpse. But the bigger picture, the bigger reason it would cost them these too much, cost these two men so much, is they would not be secret followers anymore. I mean, think about it. The people that had just crucified Jesus, these two men are standing up and saying, I now follow the crucified one. Now their lives, their positions, their wealth, their families, all the authority, that would be in jeopardy. So the two men take Jesus' dead, bloody, naked body down. They quickly cleaned it as best they could. They prepared it for burial. They had to complete their work before sundown on Friday. That's when the Sabbath began. There's no time to do any embalming. The Jews simply didn't do embalming. According to the Jewish custom, these two guys anointed Jesus' body with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and then carefully wrapped him in these long strips of linen like the ones behind me here. From head to toe. A little side note here. Isn't it fascinating to realize that the last thing that Jesus would be clothed in in the tomb were the same simple strips of cloth that had been wrapped around the baby's body by his mother, Mary. Mary had laid him in the manger 33 years before. Strikes you, doesn't it? So they laid Jesus in a tomb, borrowed from this rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, not a cemetery, but a garden tomb that had been hewn out of a solid rock, a private piece of land. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, if you want to read more about this, you can. He tells us at that command of Pontius Pilate that the tomb was to be sealed by the Romans, which meant a large rock would be put over the tomb and wax poured over the the joint where it met. And an official Roman insignia would have been pressed in to the hot wax that had been poured out in effect. In effect, the wax seal was the Romans' official statement that Jesus' body was in the tomb and that Jesus was, in fact, dead. Rome had declared. And a Roman guard was placed at the tomb so no one would steal the body. But now we see a guard was placed over the tomb. And what that means is that there would have been, check this out, at least 100 Roman soldiers there. We know that there were at least 100 Roman soldiers for two big reasons. One, a Roman guard simply meant 100 soldiers. Nothing less. 
And second, the Romans were an occupying force in a hostile land where they had just suppressed a violent uprising from the zealots less than two years ago. It's like if U.S. soldiers were uh, spending the night, let's say, in a hostile uh, combat area where everyone wanted to kill the soldiers when they were secure, not, they were outside their secure base. They just don't put two guys out there. If you're a soldier, you know they take as much force as they need to protect themselves. We have this evidence that Jesus was dead, declared dead, proved dead. I might add by a Roman soldier that carried the official sentence of death, carried it out. His body was sealed in a tomb by Rome. But then look in verse 35. He who saw this has testified so that you may also, look, may believe. His testimony is true. And he knows he is telling the truth. This is the testimony of the Apostle John who's writing this book. And remember, John says the reason he writes this book is so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. He's saying this is truth. It was John himself who testified that he saw Jesus crucified. He stood alongside Jesus' mother, held her hand through the most agonizing hours of Jesus' life. He witnessed every one of Jesus' words on the cross until Jesus had breathed his last and cried out, It is finished! But it is the official confirmation of death that John tells us that specifically taking Jesus down, placing his body in the tomb that we feel the finality of the moment. In other words, the Apostle John sees all of this. John wants us to know Jesus is dead. He's dead. That's where we start from. The resurrection of Jesus is described by John this way. Now I want you to listen carefully. Watch the words carefully. John 20 verse 1, the first half. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. The first day of the week is Sunday. We know from other passages that Mary had not gone to the tomb alone. Other women had gone to the tomb with her as well. These women had probably watched the two men hurriedly take Jesus down. Joseph and Nicodemus washed Jesus' body quickly, wrapping with the 75 pounds of stuff on there. But these women decided they could do it better. Because they were women. And they had seen the men do the work. So they go to the, attend the body of Jesus as soon as the Sabbath was over. We don't know what their thought was, how to get to him, but they go before sunrise on the first day of the week. They had the desire to show their love for him. So they get there before dawn. You can picture these women walking quickly in the dark. It's, it's just the faint raised outlines of faces are starting to be seen. You really can't tell too much. They must have still been crying as they went along the path of the garden where they had watched him laid in the tomb for Mary Magdalene. Jesus had driven out, check this out, seven demons from her. Her life had been held before Jesus had come. She had followed him as one of his disciples. He had rescued her from sin and had given her life. The least she could do was prepare his body. So as they arrive at the garden tomb, it's still dark, but there's enough light to see. And what did they see? 
Look at the second half of verse 1. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now underline that word removed. That doesn't just mean just roll back. It was out of place. Panic. Who could have taken the Lord's body? Who could have done such a thing? It rushed through her mind. Notice her inclination is not that Jesus is somehow resurrected from the dead. She assumes, just like you and I would, that the body has been taken. Fierce enemies often take the, the dead foes that and desecrate their bodies. They drag their bodies through the streets or hang them up for public ridicule for their enemies to spit on. Mary is panicked. So it says in the first half of verse 2, so she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. She leaves the women there. She runs. The disciples are hiding. Peter is the de facto leader of the the disciples. He's the oldest. Remember, Peter at this point point is probably in his mid-twenties. The other disciple, the, the one described as the one Jesus loved, is the apostle John who is writing this. So this now is a first-hand account of what he sees. You can not imagine the disciples' fear as they're hiding. Their leader had just been taken by force, look, two nights before this. It's the third day, but only two nights. Right in the midst of the uh, right from their midst in the middle of the night, they had watched as Jesus had been given a fake trial, brutally beaten beyond recognition, and then crucified. They simply are thinking they're next. So they hide. What a terrifying set of hours there. They are not getting much sleep, so when they hear the... They try to be quiet at first. But when they hear Mary's high little voice and, and panic as she bangs on the door, they open it. Second half of verse 2. And said to them, they've taken the, Lord's, the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. The same thought has come to them. They couldn't protect Jesus when he was alive, but by golly, they're going to protect his corpse. The only thing they have left of him, they're going to get that back. So look, verse 3, at that, at that Peter and the other disciple, disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. We don't know why John doesn't go in the tomb. He gets there first. It was just now getting to be light enough in that early morning setting to be able to see. Maybe it was that he didn't want to defile himself. Jewish law says if you touch a dead body, you were defiled. We're not told. I think maybe that would be scared, don't you? I mean, he's a teenager. I see grown men and women that don't want to be around a dead body, especially one that's been desecrated. I can't. He doesn't know what to expect, so he pauses. And I think the main thing John is thinking about this linen cloth that he sees lying there. He can see in the tomb. Now think about this. Those strips of cloth had been wrapped around Jesus' body. The linen strips of cloth that's lying there, they're not strewn. John is confused. If someone's going to steal the body, if the body's not there, they don't usually take time to unwrap the body from long strips of cloth. 
they just take it all or they strip the body. In either case, uh, the cloth lying there doesn't match up with what John thought might have happened to Jesus. Look at verse 6. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. Now Peter goes right into the tomb. He steps down into the, the tomb. He examines everything. Peter sees and is probably thinking the same thing. But above all, both for John and Peter, the tomb is empty. No body. But then Peter discovers another clue. The wrapping that had been around his head was not lined with the linen cloths, but was folded up, that's an important clue, in a separate place by itself. Two things I want you to see here. First, if you were an enemy of Jesus and you were stealing the body to desecrate it and parade it through town on a pole, you don't take time to take the grave clothes off first before you steal the body. You just steal the body. But even if you did take all those strips of cloth off, you didn't carefully take time then to fold up and place the, the cloth covering his head and the strips right next to it. The strips of cloth are, are this kind of heavy thing. They would have been, just to gross you out here, they would have been soaked in blood as well. 75 pounds of, of stuff had lined the strips of cloth plus the blood. It's all just sitting there, and then that piece folded up. And the same is true if you were one of Jesus' followers. If they had wanted to steal the body and make it look like they had been that he had been raised from the dead, even they would have been moving fast because the guards nearby guarding the tomb would not discover them and arrest them, and they would be crucified themselves for stealing a dead body. By the way, where the heck are the guards? Where are they? And what about those other women that had gone with Mary to the tomb early? Where are they gone? Well, we'll look at this in depth another time, but let me just give you the, the gospel narrative about the resurrection. Each, each of the books has the resurrection, and they are from different perspectives and slightly different. Don't let that concern you. Because the... These are all first-hand accounts. They are seeing the same one event happen, the resurrection happened from different points of view, though people looking at it. And what I want you to know and rest in is that these accounts fit together like a hand in a glove. They mesh perfectly. In fact, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection were all, if they had all been exactly the same, you would have known they had been made up. Like someone go, here's the, here's the paper right here. Follow this line. But as it is, these accounts, although meshing together, give us this 3D picture of how the resurrection happened. For instance, we see in Matthew 28 that before the women had gotten there, there had been a violent earthquake. Before Mary sees the stone moved. There would have been, a, this would have been very early, early morning again before the women got there. So it was very dark. Get this picture in your head. If you're a Roman soldier guarding the tomb, there's a hundred of you there. Matthew 28 tells us that it's dark. Then the ground began to shake. 
And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. The mighty angel, it said, had rolled back the large stone of the, the tomb, and then the angel sat on top of the stone. This wasn't what you think it is. The indication is that the stone, which usually is round and rolls in a little kind of track in there, was out of place. In other words, somebody picked this big boy up and moved it. They said, get out of the way, and then sat on it. No wonder the ground shook. In other words, it was in the wrong place. I think that's part of the earthquake that's described in Matthew, don't you? And how could the Roman soldiers see all this? Well, there would have been at least a few of them awake on guard duty and a fire campfire going for the torches. And the main reason is that the angel described in Matthew having an appearance like lightning with clothes as white as snow is sitting on a giant rock. The guards are so afraid they faint for at least a few moments appearing like dead men, it's described. Now the Romans... When they wake up, apparently flee. They run. The thing I want you to see is that when Mary Magdalene and the other women get there, they see that the stone is out of place. We don't know why she doesn't see the angel right away. But it's quiet. But we know she immediately runs off to tell Peter and John, leaving the other women there. You with me? The guards we know have already fled at that point. To go tell their superiors they know Jesus' body is gone and that they have seen angels. The guards are paid a large sum of money. We know that to keep quiet about what they, they really saw. And they come up with a, a version of the story that Jesus' disciples had somehow come in the night and overpowered all of them and stolen the body of Jesus. Which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. A, because the guards, they let them do it. I mean, that kind of thing was enough to get the guards themselves crucified. And B, what benefit would the disciples have with a dead Jesus? Because, listen, bodies smell quickly. It's hard to hide a dead body in the city with 100,000 extra people there for Passover. Remember, this is during Passover. The city's packed to the brim with people visiting for that feast. The body would have been discovered. Back to the woman, women standing there. Mary has run off. The stone has rolled away. It's dark. The guards are gone. Mary's run off to tell the other disciples the stone's removed. Then the angel, the women see the angel, verse 20, uh, 5 of Matthew 28. The angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. Someone say Amen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples, for he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. Now I say all of that, all of that, because when John and Peter arrive, and then Mary Magdalene later than that arrives back at the garden tomb, the women, the soldiers, the angels are gone. It's quiet. Back to John chapter 20, look in your Bible. Peter is inside the empty tomb. We're back at that. He's back inside. He's wondering what could have happened to Jesus' body. He's looking at the clues. What appears to Peter is that the resurrection body uh, of Jesus has passed through the linen wrapping similar to the way Jesus would appear later in the day to the disciples. He just simply walked through a wall. Look at verse 8. 
The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. And they did not understand, for they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Now, this is fascinating. So watch close. Since there were two now standing in the tomb, their testimony was admissible under official Jewish law, we find it Deuteronomy 17 and 19. Remember the other disciple is John who is giving us this testimony. This is first-hand testimony. John says that he stepped into the tomb that he believed. He believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but it clearly states in verse 9, he didn't believe or understand yet that Jesus had risen from the dead because of what he knew from Scripture in the Old Testament. John simply believed because of what he saw, or at least didn't see. And in a way, that's what we see as well. Jesus' body is gone. Now, please get this. The empty tomb is a total and utter surprise to Peter and John. Jesus' main two inside guys of the 12. It's their lack of of expectation at a resurrection that shows us that the disciples did not make up the resurrection story to fit their preconceived expectation. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? The resurrection had shocked them. It did not fit at all what they understood from Scripture. It was only later as they began to understand from Jesus' teaching in the 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus taught them the study of Scripture, and then later, aided by the Holy Spirit, that they saw this. Now write this down. This is fascinating. Peter and John came to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection had been foretold in the Old Testament. Peter and John came to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection had been foretold in the Old Testament. John believed as he went into the tomb, but they didn't put two and two together until later as Jesus began to teach them after the resurrection. This is something that most Christians don't even know today, that the Old Testament is the really a story about man's unfaithfulness, but that God would send a redeemer to save his lost sheep. Back to the two of them standing in the empty tomb. Peter and John go back to where they're stay, staying then. They leave the tomb. Mary, Mary had apparently just been behind. Remember, the guys had run ahead. Mary didn't run. Mary is totally distraught as she arrives back, still panicked. Then look at verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, up to this point, she had only seen the giant stone that had been rolled away. And she, had been, she, and she had been gone to tell the disciples when the other women had seen and heard from the angel. And they left. You got the picture? We don't know if the other disciples had told her anything of what they saw or even if they'd gotten there and they had crossed. We're just not told that. But it appears that she has not seen them. We're only told that she is crying, but not a slight tear in the eye, but the Greek word for cleo, it means bitter lament, 
we would say in our house, it's ugly crying. When you can't, when you can't catch your breath, your nose is just pouring snot. Your, your, your bottom lip is sucking in and out as you're trying to grasp. She, can, she, she can't do anything. She can't even talk. I, I think she's really brave here. I do. It's hard to step into a dark little space of where a dead body is. Now remember, she doesn't necessarily know his body isn't there. She just knows the stones rolled away. She steps down into the tomb and says... And it says in verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, and one, and one at the head and the other at the feet. Now remember, this is a tiny space. Now for all the Bible says about angels, we know relatively little about them. Other than sometimes they appear as human at times and not a threat, and other times they appear so scary that the Roman soldiers pooped their pants and they fell down dead. But apparently, they are very scary. Here are two of them in this tiny room that are not so scary. Here it is, verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying like that? Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think they must have a kind of look on their face, like a grin, maybe a slight smile, because they clearly know why she was crying. And they've got good news to tell her. Mary responds, verse 13, second half, because they have taken my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they have put him. She doesn't expect the resurrection. Mary, like Peter and John, have no clue that Jesus has been raised from the dead. She only thinks the body has been stolen and it has crushed her, just like it would crush you. With someone you love, their body had been stolen. She is operating under the reality that in her mind, Jesus is dead. She had seen him beaten and crucified and died. She saw him wrapped in cloth, laid in a tomb. She had seen the stone rolled in front of the grave. She had seen the, seen the stone sealed. His body now was gone. So the angels have good news for her, but they don't say why. Because just outside, Jesus is standing there. They're going to let her see him for herself. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. She sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She doesn't know why, uh, doesn't, we don't know why, Maybe it was the tears. Maybe it was the grief. You know how your eyes get blurry when you cry like that. I think that it was something to do with the appearance of his new resurrected body. The last time she had seen Jesus, he was naked, dead, bloody. His eyes were not even visible because his face was swelled. Uh, his eyes were swelled shut from the beatings that he had taken. And remember, in that culture, women were not allowed to look men in the eye especially someone that they were not related to. So she is probably looking at the ground and crying. But not now. He was alive. But she still doesn't know it's Jesus. Then he speaks. Verse 15. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus is not some floating spirit like, woo. He's a real human being, right? He is, 
He's still divine. He's still human nature. Two natures we always talk about, right? She still doesn't recognize him, though. Look at verse 15. Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. She's thinking the body has got to be somewhere in the garden. The gardener just got there and has thrown him in the trash. I mean, what do you do with a dead body? She just assumes that since she is in a garden, and this is the first thing in the morning, the gardener has come to work to work the garden. Notice that Jesus had called her woman the first time, but now, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He calls her by her name. He calls her by her name. She recognizes the voice saying her name. Jesus had said back in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Mary was one of his sheep. And he knows him. She knows him. He hasn't left her alone. He has come for her. Now this is astounding to me. Jesus is not going to let one of his lost sheep go. She knows his voice because she is one of his sheep. He has come for her. Yes, she has traveled with him. She knows the sound of his speaking boy voice. But listen to me, the much deeper than you think here, this thing is, if Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, he means spiritually. And when he speaks her name, she hears him because she is one of his sheep. Think about this. Jesus over and over again talks about sheep his sheep hearing his voice, and that they are some of, there are some, he says, that are not my sheep. Do you remember when he talked about those who did not believe, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones that didn't believe, or the, he goes, they're not my sheep. Jesus, he's chosen to come here. He calls her by name. He has chosen her. And get this, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He knows your name because He's chosen you. As we think about this story, this is real. It's here that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's calling you by name just like He calls Mary. I want you to make sure that you get the gravity of what's happening in this interaction if this had been a made-up story that the Jewish disciples had come up with to make it appear that Jesus had risen from the grave, then why add this part? I mean, think about it. If they had made it up, the first sighting of a resurrected Jesus would, been, would have been to a big group of people. And they would have all been men. Because in the first century Israel, wouldn't, women couldn't even testify in court. They were thought to be too unreliable. And remember, the average Jewish dude didn't even speak to women that were not their family members unless they had to. But Jesus appears first 
of all the people on the earth at that time to Mary. That's powerful. That's powerful. By the way, I think if I had been Jesus, I might have been, attempt, uh, been tempted to like appear in front of Pontius Pilate or something. Don't you? Like, hey, I'm back. <laughs> or like the Sanhedrin, like all these old fat guys with long beards falling over like, hey, I'm here. But no, Jesus appears to the one follower that the world would say, she's nothing. But Jesus entrusts the message that he's going to give her. She apparently grabs him in a strong embrace and hugs him tightly, now crying tears of joy. So Jesus says to her in verse 17, don't cling to me. Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's not that Jesus didn't want her her to touch him. That's not it. That was actually okay, but that he had work to do and she had work to do. He says, I've got to go back to my Father and there's tons to do before that, so you go tell the guys I'm alive. She does. That had to be terribly, terribly hard for her to let him go at that moment, don't you think? I mean, it speaks to us, doesn't it, that our job is that although we want to gather here and we want to sing and worship and be with each other all the time, we have to go and tell a dying world that Jesus is risen and to tell them what that means, that they can have life in him. So she goes. John 20, 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he said to her. Man, when we are dead in our grave, may people say that about us. That Paul saw the Lord, and then he told everyone that he ever knew what Jesus had said to him. Why is the resurrection something that we need to study? Well, quite frankly, it is the biggest event of all events in history. Write this down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that Jesus is the Son of God. And that God has accepted his death as a propitiation for sin. The resurrection of Jesus... Christ from the dead means that Jesus is the Son of God and that God has accepted His death as a propitiation for sin. Given by God the Father as an act of love to the lost sheep to purchase their freedom so that Jesus was a sacrifice for the sins of all those who would believe on Him as Savior and Lord. A propitiation is simply a payment made to appease God's wrath. Listen how the apostle John puts it. 1 John chapter 4 verse 9. God's love was revealed among us this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
when Jesus is raised from the dead, we see that God has approved Jesus' death and payment for sin. How does the resurrection prove this? Because only God has the power to create life. Only God has the power to create life. And therefore, only God can bring back someone from the grave. Only God can create life out of nothing. And only God can resurrect someone who has been in the grave for three days after dying, dying a violent death and having his heart pierced. And if Jesus is not raised, if Jesus is not raised, well, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If Jesus is not raised, then all of this is worthless. This church, this meaning that we found, the hope that we have in the future resurrection of our own bodies, it's not true if Jesus is not raised. If Jesus is not raised, then we are still dead in our sins, still enemies of God, lost. But praise God, we have an account in all four Gospels that tell us the resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, For I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that, we, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament Scriptures, he's saying. And that He had appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters. At one time, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. When the apostle Paul is telling us that Jesus was raised according to the scriptures, you realize that he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament scriptures have not been written. This is the oldest part right here of the New Testament. This has all been prophesied for thousands of years. And then it happened. And because it does happen, well, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, oh, he holds the future. And life is worth a living just because he lives. You see the purpose for our life. Quite literally, for all eternity, has been set in motion because Jesus is alive right now and seated at the right hand of God the Father. And soon, very soon, he's coming back to take his sheep home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
We thank you for what you have given us in these words. We thank you for the, the hope that we have in, in your resurrection, Jesus, and the hope that we have as believers in you in the resurrection of our bodies from the dead or when you return to take us all home. So we trust you, Jesus. As you believers in the house, you pray. You non-believers, if you would, if you're not a Christian, would you just kindly look up here to me? Just catch eyes with me. Becoming a Christian does not mean they have to learn all of this stuff and then get good enough and then become a Christian. You see, you don't earn your salvation. The only way it happens is if the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, wakes you from the dead, causes you to believe. Jesus called it being born again, born from above. And so, to believe, if you have resonated with this story, if you go, Jesus is alive, He died for me, you've been regenerated. I didn't do that, you didn't do that. You don't choose to say, I, I, I want to be good enough and then Jesus will notice me. Jesus chooses you. And you believe. You see what I'm saying? It's not like the blind man says, I see and his eyes are healed. It's more like his eyes are healed than he sees. That's what it means to believe. Your eyes are opened, so you believe. So just pray this to God, the Father. I believe that you loved me by sending your son Jesus to the cross to die for my sin. I believe that you raised him from the dead. I believe that he sits at your right hand right now. And I believe that he is coming to take me home at my death or when he comes to end it all and end the world. Can you pray that? Pray this then. You can have all my tomorrows. I don't know much. But I know I'm going to follow you. Will you help me? I love you, Jesus. And end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.